Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Pim Fox, there's been a lot of discussion about the Kremlin's response to the election of Donald Trump as the next president of the U.S. And our Bloomberg News reporter, Henry Meyer, has dug in and gotten a sense from behind the scenes in Moscow. What actually are Russian officials expecting from President-elect Trump's administration and just how excited they may be? Henry, thank you so much for joining us. You wrote this terrific story. Can you just give us a snapshot of what the mood is? is among Russian officials right now? I mean, I think what you're seeing at the moment, uh, you know, behind the scenes is a sense of growing alarm, uh, principally because they um, have seen how the accusations of, uh, of Russian interference in the election of the ties between Russia and Donald Trump are now snowballing. And there is a sense that they don't know where this is heading. Can you speak about Rex Tillerson and the Russian view of his role, not only in the administration, but his role in the general U.S.-Russia relations? I mean, when his appointment was announced, uh, there was a sense uh, that this is someone we can do business with. It was very positively received. Obviously, during his confirmation hearings, there was a different message uh, that went out from Rex Tillerson. He called Russia a threat. The uh, assumption here was that he had to take a tougher line on Russia in order to win um, you know, the confidence of lawmakers and, and, and get confirmed in his job. Uh, but I think that they do now believe that a number of appointees of Donald Trump you know, may turn out to have a different view than Trump has on Russia, a more hawkish view. Uh, and, and, and that's a problem. What are the policies that Russia would most like to see changed coming out of the U.S.? I mean, first and foremost, uh, obviously, they want to see sanctions lifted. You know, whatever the Russians say, uh, and they put on a brave face and talk about how sanctions have actually had a a positive impact uh, by by getting them to become more self-sufficient, it's been a huge drag on growth uh, because it's limited financing. So that is probably the biggest thing they're looking for. Um, other than that, uh, they would be very happy to work together with the U.S. Uh, on fighting terrorism. That's something they've been pushing for for a long time. And as Wait, well... To that point, why hasn't the U.S. been more cooperative with Russia on fighting terrorism? Well, Syria has been a huge area of disagreement. I mean, the U.S. and Russia have tried to, to reach uh, agreement on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they've always fell apart, these agreements. So, you know, they are hoping that uh, if Trump doesn't place any uh, importance on Assad's departure, as the, the outgoing administration did, that they can, in fact, find some common ground now. Henry, the uh, nominee for U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, the South Carolina Governor Nikki uh, Haley, as Kala said uh, in a question during her nomination hearing, said, I don't think that we can trust them, meaning uh, the Russians. Uh, 
Is this rhetoric or is this just uh, a r- unveiling of, uh, of what the administration really feels? Well, that's what the Russians are asking yeah. themselves. Uh, I mean, you know, they certainly believe that, uh, you know, that, that there's a, there is an, uh, these people have to, to take a tough line, you know, and, and otherwise they're not going to get uh, confirmed. Um, you know, on the other hand, um, I think they, they understand that, um, that there will be people in the administration uh, who do not share Trump's views. Now, the issue is, is he going to rein them in? Is he going to make sure that everyone sticks to, to, to his uh, stance or not? But they understand there will be dissenting voices within the administration. Thank you very much. Henry Meyer is our politics and international affairs reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Moscow. And he gets to write fabulous sentences like this from uh, Putin. I find it hard to believe that he, President-elect Trump, rushed to some hotel to meet girls of loose morals although ours are undoubtedly the best in the world. I'm not going to even try to top that one. This is Bloomberg. Pim Fox, I have been looking at headlines crossing my terminal all morning about just how optimistic everybody is, whether it's consumer confidence rising to the highest level since 2002 or some investor surveys, fund manager surveys coming out of UBS and Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, showing the most optimism since the financial crisis. But is this warranted? I want to bring in John Augustine, uh, CIO of Huntington Bank, who's going to answer that question for us. John. Thank you for being here. Do you think people are too optimistic? No, we don't. We just don't think so. We think that was a game changer, the election. We think we're in a we're in somewhat of a timeout around confirmation hearings now. What what we notice now is the economic numbers are also picking up uh, to support, let's say, all these consumer numbers and business surveys that have been coming out. We think the the economic numbers are impressive as well to go along with this pickup we've seen in confidence and animal spirits. And we'll see how the Fed reacts to that. If that's the case, do you not find it ironic that the central theme of not only the U.S. presidential election, but also seemingly the Brexit vote and a variety of other populist movements around the world is inequality and the lack of economic growth when you're saying things look pretty good? What what I would say to that is the the populism movement seems to us to be about economic uh, wealth at home at this point in time and how can it be directed that way versus spread out among other countries. So tariffs and protectionist policies that may make goods from overseas and let's, at least in the case of the United States overseas more expensive for us, uh, as long as the dollar doesn't uh, decrease in value. Yeah. In general, one of our thoughts, one of our top 10 thoughts this year at Huntington is about populism and is about, in general, we would view it as inflationary. We've taken steps in portfolios there for our customers already. So, yes. We, what would we be would some say, of those uh, steps? Well, we look at, we started a gold position, for instance, in December. Then we're moving into tips as well. Our fixed income team is looking Treasury at inflation protected Treasury inflation. securities. Okay. Yep. So, but and just uh, gold ETFs or, or actual gold ETFs. Bull, ETFs. IAU, okay. GLD, ETFs. So, we're, we're trying to think about that. In December, our risk of inflation 
flipped with the risk of recession. Now it's higher over the next six to 12 months. So we're, we're, we're following a very deliberate pattern to try to look out for our customers as we see this as a little bit of a game changer. John, you help oversee about $17.5 billion as chief investment officer at Huntington. Have you started to reduce the cash allocation in your clients' portfolios? It's been consistently low. You know, that's one of the things we've lost as investment managers on the buy side where we are, that we've lost really since the Great Recession is cash as an asset class. So it's been consistently low. We really can't get it much lower. We we, we go down to about 2%, and that's just for cash flow purposes. So these scenario that you're portraying really is a bullish one, one that would favor stocks. How much of the bond allocation are you shifting to stocks? What's the new allocation for today? So 10% overweight stocks versus bonds. We did take some profits in high yield bonds recently. We moved those proceeds to tips. So we're looking at more defensive allocation within the bonds. When did you shift the 10% overweight in stocks? Uh, over the past two weeks. Or excuse me, the 10% overweight in stocks. That yeah. was mid-year last year. Okay, but the uh, the high-yield profit that was taking, recent. that was recent. That, that was, was the past recent. few yeah. weeks. And it's because you think that the yields have just gotten too low uh, relative to where the fundamentals are. Correct. Okay. Correct. And we still have a cyclical stance in stocks where we're looking at smaller mid-cap U.S., primarily keeping dollars here as the stock market kind of rotates as it does generally in January. I notice also that you're looking at technology, uh, and Microsoft is one example. What are some of the characteristics that led you to Microsoft? Uh, restructuring being completed, uh, more towards the cloud, let's say, and more towards revenues, annuity-type revenues coming out of that. So in our view, restructuring's done. Profit growth has, has increased and been elevated out of that. Now to us and our equity team, there's a consistency to that that we like. How insulated do you think the U.S. economy is from what's going on around the rest of the world? Uh, um, let's see. Meaning Policy, let's say if, if the economic numbers started getting better before the election, that's what we're coming to realize now. Now the question to us is how much will the new administration, for lack of a better term, juice the economic numbers to get us from 1% to 3%? And then the U.S. is the relative leader in the world. Are you hedging against possibly being wrong? And if so, how? We're not hedging yet. I mean, the first place uh, we moved is in the bond, bond portfolios. If we don't see policy initiatives come out, pro-growth U.S. policy initiatives come out, the second area then we would look to trim is U.S. small and mid-caps, which, like a lot of stocks, have had a good run. So we're waiting for the agenda to come out. We think we're in this timeout around confirmation hearings right now. And we, we still suggest that this administration and these cabinet members, it's going to be bold whatever comes out of the group. Energy. Give me your thoughts on energy. Uh, $55 a barrel. Okay. That's what the futures market we're has. At All right, we're at 51 and 70, 51, yeah, 75. The futures market today. has it 55 out the rest of the year. The oil companies say they can make money there. And it's a big turnaround in profits this year. That's the sector, right? That and financials right. are the two sectors. Buy some ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil, Schlumberger. Uh, Valero's interesting because uh, gasoline's a big export now. 
What about ten-year uh, treasuries? What level would the yield have to go to to be attractive again to you? Nominal GDP. So with the, what we've noticed very uh, definitively since the election, the ten-year treasury yield was hanging out since the Great Recession at real year-over-year GDP growth rate. Now that's flipped. It's trying to get up to nominal year-over-year GDP, which is about 2.9% now. So north of 2.9, then we'd look at it. Thanks very much for spending time with us. Thank really you for having interesting. us. And um, I guess since you're in Columbus, Ohio, uh, do you think it's just a quick thing? Is it a better view from Columbus, the economy, than it is, let's say, on the two coasts? It, uh, in my view, I've always been in Ohio and in Chicago and Colorado. I've always been in the interior. And yes, it's always good having a view that you can look both ways outwards. Thank you very much. John Augustine. Augustine, he is the chief investment officer for Huntington National Bank. Uh, they have approximately 17.5 billion assets under management based in Columbus, Ohio. And you can follow him on Twitter at John underscore Augustine. Tim Fox, I'm very glad that we get to talk about something that I've seen a lot of catastrophic headlines about recently. For example, Business Insider has a headline today, there will be no one in charge of America's nuclear arsenal when Trump takes office. I want to bring in Jonathan Bernstein. He's a Bloomberg View columnist. He is also uh, teaches political science at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And he wrote a really great column talking about how the empty Trump administration will struggle. Uh, Jonathan, how empty is the administration at this point? Well, very. Um, eventually, um, they're supposed to put thousands of people into the executive branch. Um, we have a, so far they've put 29. Um, that is, they've named 29 people. Uh, of course, nobody's been confirmed yet, and a lot of them aren't even ready for the Senate Act. But 29. 29 out of 1,000? Out of thousands, really. Um, about a thousand get confirmed by the Senate, and then out of those, we have about 690 that one of the, the, the experts seem to think are the top positions. Out of those, 29. Well, we've got news that says that President-elect Donald Trump is asking about 50 senior Obama administration officials to stay on in their roles. That's uh, according to uh, Trump spokesman Sean Spicer. That's 50, and it includes uh, such roles as a special envoy to gl the Global Coalition Fighting the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. That's uh, Brett uh, McGurk. Is that enough, or are we really just uh, you know 50 out of— a thousand, that doesn't sound like quite a lot. Well, there, there are people that keep the lights on. There are permanent civil servants who will do the work of the, of the various agencies um, as caretakers. And it's not unusual to, for, for administrations to take time. The Obama administration was ahead of this pace, but not way ahead of this pace. And actually, they had some stumbles around uh, just after he was sworn in, which slowed them further. So, you know, it's not it's not as catastrophic as the initial number makes it sound, but it's bad. So what are the potential consequences of this? Well, there's there's really two. First of all, the agencies and the departments are not going to work as well without um, people in place. They, they will continue to carry on what they're doing, but 
How well will they react to new things? You know, not necessarily all that well. Which departments do you think are most at risk for uh, being less efficient than usual? You know, I, I would guess, if I had to say, the ones that you don't read about in the headlines or the ones that have sort of uh, that may be called on to suddenly do things. So, you know, we have no FEMA director named by the new um, the emergency management uh, agency named by the new administration. So, you the know, DMV might get slower. No, sorry? The DMV might get slower. Yeah. Um, but we, we, the National Security Council, right? I mean, there are vacancies there. Okay, the National Security Council is in a different category because those people are not confirmed by Congress. It's not clear how many people they have. We have competing articles, some of which say they're ready to go, and some of which say it's chaos. Right. Uh, And you start to wonder, well, who's leaking to try to undermine who? We have a lot of reports about bickering between the incoming National Security Advisor and the the incoming Secretary of Defense, um, perhaps other factions going on. Some of this is normal for an administration, but the level of it seems to be way beyond normal. Is, is it normal to turf out all ambassadors, political ambassadors, people that had a political appointment to become U.S. ambassador to foreign nations? Is it, is it normal to turf them all out on Inauguration Day? There was a story about that um, that sort of treated it as, as a real extraordinary. It seems like it's a minor. I, I'm not a specific expert in the ambassadors, but from what I can tell, it's a fairly minor issue. Um, they're not doing that, as far as I can tell, with the... Um, career with, diplomats. With, with, right, the career yeah. diplomats. So, And most of the other people, the political appointees, expect to leave. Anyway, we do have, you know, again career people below them at all of the important in all of the important countries so it's not like nobody can turn the lights on but again there there are several of these stories that sort of imply more chaos than usual just real quick Jonathan do you expect the rank and file the careers uh, to stick around that's a very good question we don't know the answer yet um, one of the things that I wrote about this week is you know most career civil servants, despite the, you know, popular image, they're very good professionals. They take their job seriously. Um, But if you ask me, having no new supervision, plus uh, a president coming in who in some cases has disdain for the mission of their agencies. You got to question what happens. Jonathan Bernstein, thanks very much. Bloomberg View columnist. This is Bloomberg. President-elect Donald Trump selected Sonny Perdue, the former governor of Georgia, to be his secretary of agriculture. And here to tell us more about the uh, nominee is Alan Bjurga, our Bloomberg Markets reporter when it comes to everything agriculture. And, of course, he is the co-host of the great uh, radio program Politics, Policy and Power uh, on uh, Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg 99.1 Studios in Washington, D.C. And you can follow Alan on Twitter at Alan Bjorga, B-J-E-R-G-A. Alan, um, uh, go ahead. Give us the, the lowdown on Sonny Purdue. Well, thanks for having me on the show and let me get down to my rural roots here, Pim, and uh, having the J in the Twitter that everybody is very considerate towards that all the time. 
Talking about Sonny Perdue, um, he is uh, former governor of Georgia, the first uh, governor of Georgia since Reconstruction from the Republican Party. So his election in 2002 into 2003 was a big deal, uh, governed a little bit as a centrist, uh, but at the same time, a very traditional profile for an agriculture secretary, uh, you know, governor of a state with a large rural population. Now, it is different that his orientation is more southern. Uh, a lot of your agriculture secretaries will be Midwestern governors, and that matters um, in agriculture. You're regional orientation because it, it makes you more aware of some crops than others. He'll be seen as a cotton guy, a peanut guy. He has a doctorate in veterinary medicine, so he understands animal agriculture as well. But we really don't know what he thinks about ethanol, and biofuels producers are watching that pretty closely. I should also just mention that he has no relation to the Purdue family famed for uh, the Purdue Farms chicken no, he does company. not. But so he I think, is. I feel like I have to mention that, and that is important to know because association. when you have all these billionaires in the cabinet, that would be a very logical association to make, Lisa. But he is a cousin to Senator David Perdue, a Republican of Georgia. And after Jeff Sessions, David Perdue may have been Donald Trump's biggest supporter in the Senate, was stumping for him early, was also pushing for his cousin to be Secretary of Agriculture. Perdue met with Donald Trump in Trump Tower way back November 30th to talk about this job. It got held up because there was a hope that agriculture could be a way to diversify Trump's cabinet. A lot of Hispanics were brought in, um, including Lieutenant Governor, former Lieutenant Governor, of California, Abel Maldonado. But in the end, they kind of ran into a time crunch and, and they went back to the tried and true, which turned out to be Sonny Purdue. Well, so what exactly are the main issues that he's going to be facing? I mean, is it ethanol? Well, ethanol is going to be a big one because you have a lot of people in the Trump administration who are very skeptical of ethanol policy. And agriculture, even though rural votes helped put Donald Trump in the White House, the farm vote can be at cross purposes with the Trump administration. Um, you know, immigration reform is a big deal to these folks because of the agricultural workforce. Uh, so is trade because agriculture actually has a net trade surplus. It's one of the few industries that, that do in the United States. So Sonny Perdue, interestingly enough, supported an immigration crackdown when he was in Georgia, and, and that may actually make him a little more amenable to what Donald Trump may have to say. But in trade, there's a real fear in the agricultural community that Donald Trump is going to do something on manufacturing that's going to make China angry, and they're going to cut off their sales of soybeans. And it's a lot of years, China is the number one buyer of U.S. agricultural goods. Sonny Perdue's business background, he once ran a grain and fertilizer business. Is that creating some pushback from opponents of the nomination. Well, there's a lot of concern, you know, that this is another voice of big agriculture. Um, and actually that also was echoed in the Obama administration even. You know, the previous secretary, Tom Vilsack, was very supportive of things like organic farming, agriculture and such, but he was from the number one U.S. ethanol state. You know, with Sonny Perdue, you know, you take a look at some of these mergers that are going on with, you know, Bear Monsanto. Is, is he going to speak out as a critical voice on some of this? Also, he was a big supporter of of the expansion of the poultry industry in Georgia. And, and a lot of folks who care about animal welfare, environmental sustainability, they look at sort of these mega poultry forms, farms as, as the poster child of environmental waste in modern agriculture. Uh, so this isn't the only uh, nomination that is getting uh, making headlines today. Steve Mnuchin, President-elect Trump's nominee for Treasury Secretary, is currently at the moment testifying in front of Senate. Uh, what are the big issues that he's facing? 
Well, so he is speaking right now, and it's a very traditional-looking hearing. You know, he has his fiance and his three children there. Um, There's a lot of hard hits from him from senators like Elizabeth Warren and others that this guy ran a foreclosure machine uh, during the financial crisis, of course, you know, profiting during the financial crisis. Uh, He's saying that this was a loan modification machine he was running, that he was trying to help people as much as he could, but in the end he was running a business. Um, And it's that interest in business and that experience in business that will make him a good practical Treasury Secretary. That seems to be where the fault lines are being drawn right now. Alan, uh, in your role, additional role as co-host of Politics, Policy and Power, can you characterize what it has been like to be in Washington and try to read the tea leaves of what is going to happen tomorrow and after tomorrow? It's an incredibly complex picture with a lot of moving pieces. I mean, let's look at the inauguration itself. Uh, You're experiencing a a lower number of people coming to town and yet higher security for those people because you just don't know how the volatile combination of people who have come to see Trump and the people who have come to march against Trump, how that's going to mix. From a policy standpoint, you know, you have a lot of these nominations that are sort of being rushed through Capitol Hill right now. There's some concern about ethics and about the potential potential amount of time that they have to take a look at these folks. Chuck Schumer from New York is uh, trying to slow walk some of the nominations, maybe drag out the process a little bit while the Democrats make their points. Um, and then, of course, you have these huge questions about foreign policy coming up in the next few weeks. You simply do not know what U.S. foreign policy is going to look like. That, of course, gives us a lot of smart people to talk about a lot of smart things on the show. Thank you so much. Alan Birga, Bloomberg News reporter, as well as co-host of Politics, Policy, and Power, coming up after us on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.